Have you ever noticed how the Word of God sometimes says things that may appear to be contradictory at first, but when we stop to consider them, we can see that they really don't contradict. Of course, those who are looking for some reason to distrust the Bible point to issues like that in an attempt to discredit the Word of God. But those passages really are not a contradiction. And in fact, I would say this, those who are willing to be intellectually honest can see that passages like that actually reveal the depth and the breadth of what God has said in His Word. Let me illustrate this by having us turn to Proverbs chapter 26 by way of introduction this morning. Before we resume our series through 1 John, go back into Hebrew Scripture to the book of Proverbs right after Psalms. Proverbs chapter 26. (coughs) The book of Proverbs is just what it says. It is a collection of Proverbs. It is a collection of sayings or statements of wisdom. As a result, the verses in this book often stand on their own. What I mean is, in all other books of the Bible, it is of utmost importance that we realize that the verses occur in a context... And we must interpret them according to the verses that are in front of and behind the verse that we are considering. That that isn't always the case with the book of Proverbs. Many of the statements in the book of Proverbs are not continuing a thought that came before and the thought that will come after will not necessarily be related. These Proverbs are pithy statements of wisdom that apply to specific situations and circumstances in life. With that in mind, look at verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Verse 5, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. Now, maybe you're scratching your head and wondering what in the world these two verses are saying. They seem to be contradicting each other, and they occur back to back in the Bible, of all things. How do we resolve this? Remember, the verses in this book are pithy statements of wisdom that apply to specific situations and specific circumstances in life. If you keep that in mind, these two verses make sense. There are times when it is wise and best not to answer a fool because the conversation will only turn into a mess and you will be seen to be just like him. Therefore, in situations like that, it is best to keep your mouth shut and say nothing because it's not worth the effort. We have a a proverb, if you will, in our own culture. This is a Hebrew proverb. We have one in our culture that says, don't get in a fight with a skunk, you lose even if you win. Well, that's kind of what this verse is saying, this first verse. However, however, there are other times in life when to say nothing would give the impression that the foolish person is right and that could be damaging in some way. In situations like that, it is important to say something so you don't give the impression that the foolish person is correct in his foolishness. So which verse is true? Both verses are true. Which verse should you live by in life? The answer is it depends on the situation. 
The book of Proverbs gives us wisdom, but we need to exercise that wisdom in various situations in life and depending on various situations in life. This is an example where at first glance it appears that there is a contradiction, but when you stop to consider all the facts, you realize that the two statements are actually complementary and give the full picture. Now another example of this kind of thing is found in our text this morning in 1 John chapter 3. So please turn with me over into the New Testament near the end to the letter titled 1 John chapter 3. Our text this morning will consist of verses 4 through 10, so I invite you to follow along as I read these verses for us. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin, because he has been born of God. In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. As I read these verses, you may have noticed the apparent contradiction with what John has already said in this letter. Verses 6 and 9, specifically of this chapter, seem to contradict some statements that John made earlier in his letter. Back up to chapter 1, and I'll show you what I mean. Back up to the first chapter, notice verse 8. Verse 8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now here, John says that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And he also says in verse 9 that we ought to be those who confess our sins. These verses of chapter 1 are clearly saying that we sin sometimes. Yet we just read in chapter 3 that whoever is born of God does not sin and he cannot sin. How do we solve this apparent contradiction? This is where skeptics of the Bible love to try to make the Word of God look bad, but they aren't willing to take the time to consider what is being said in its given context. The key to understanding what John is saying in chapter 1 and in our text in chapter 3 is to realize that in chapter 1, John is describing sin as an act that every Christian yields to on occasion. He says, if you claim that you never sin, you're deceiving yourself. You know you fall. You know you fail. We all do. But in chapter 3, John is describing sin 
as an ongoing, unbroken pattern of life. Listen as I quote Dr. Warren Wiersbe because he says it so well. Quote, To practice sin is to sin consistently and as a way of life. It does not refer to committing an occasional sin. It is clear that no Christian is sinless, but God expects a true believer to sin less, not to sin habitually. Every great personality mentioned in the Bible sinned at one time or another. Abraham lied about his wife in Genesis 12. Moses lost his temper and disobeyed God in Numbers 20. Peter denied the Lord three times in Matthew 26. But sin was not the settled practice of these men. It was an incident in their lives totally contrary to their normal habits. End quote. You see, there is no contradiction between what John wrote in chapter 1 and what he writes in our text here in chapter 3. Chapter 1 is saying that we as Christians need to admit that there are times in our lives when we sin. There are occasions when we fail. There are incidents in our lives when we don't do what we ought to do or when we do what we should not do. And we ought to confess those sins to the Lord, says 1 John 1, 9, instead of trying to claim that we do not sin. By contrast, chapter 3 is saying that the unbeliever lives a life of habitual, ongoing, regular practice of sin, especially the sin of unbelief. So that's how we are to understand the apparent contradiction between chapter 1 and chapter 3. To say it simply, the child of God may commit sin. The unbeliever practices sin. With that in mind, let's jump into our text in chapter 3. And we will see what John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says. Verse 4, he says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. John has just stated in verse 3 that the Christian who really believes that Jesus is coming back someday will be purifying his or her life in anticipation of that glorious event. The return of Jesus and our transformation into his likeness is the blessed hope of the child of God. But it goes without saying that not everyone in this world is a child of God. That reality prompts John to write this section of his letter that we just read. It is a passage of Scripture that delineates the differences between a child of God and someone who is not a child of God. You notice that John's wording is even stronger. He refers to unbelievers as children of the devil. Now why would John use such a phrase? When John uses that term, Understand that he is not name-calling. He is not using a slur or an epithet. He is simply expressing the facts as they are. All people in our world, and to be more specific, all people here in this room, all people in this world are divided up into two categories. There are those who are children of God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there are those who are not children of God. Those who are not children of God can be described as children of the devil. 
All people are in one category or another. All people are in one family or another. I realize that people who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ do not like to accept the fact that God's Word describes them as children of the devil, (coughs) but that is a fact. The phrase does not imply, now please hear this, this phrase does not imply that all non-Christians are horrible people. It does not mean that all non-Christians are terribly immoral. All non-Christians are flagrantly evil. No, but it does indicate that if they don't know Christ, they are not in the family of God. This is the clear teaching of Scripture, even if it's not politically correct to say so in our day and age. You are either saved or lost. You are either redeemed or damned. You are either a believer or an unbeliever, a Christian or a non-Christian, a child of God or a child of the devil. Those are the only options. There is no middle ground. That is why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Knowing Jesus is the only way to be right with God. If someone doesn't know Jesus, doesn't trust Jesus Christ, embrace Jesus, then that person is not a child of God. And if you aren't a child of God, if you're not in the family of God, the only other option is that he or she is a child of the devil. Right near the end of this letter, over in chapter 5, verse 19, John says, We know that we are of God, referring to believers. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now again, I realize that most unbelievers do not realize that they are under the sway of the wicked one. They're not conscious of that. They're not even aware of that. But that is a fact. In John 12, 31, Satan is called the prince of this world. In 2 Timothy 2, 26, salvation is described as escaping the snare of the devil. The reason why the Bible uses these kinds of phrases is because those who are not children of God are children of the devil or, to say it another way, are under the influence of the evil one, under his sway, under his dominion. That is what Scripture clearly teaches, and this is just one passage that presents that doctrine to us. Here in this text, John is describing the characteristics of those who are born of God and those who are not born of God. The characteristics of those who are children of God and those who are not children of God. And he begins verse 4 by saying, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. The NASB and the ESV use the word practice in this verse. And those are good translations. Whoever practices sin. That's clearly what John is referring to in this section. He is not merely talking about people who commit sins. Because, beloved, you know and I know all people commit sins. Christian and non-Christian alike. John is talking about the practice and the character, and the habitual actions of a person's life. And he makes the statement that the person who practices sin is practicing lawlessness. That is, the person who lives a life of habitual, unbroken, flagrant sin is living a life without laws, that is, divine laws, guidelines, or standards. Today, we use the phrase, he's doing his own thing. That's basically what John is saying. This is the person who just does his own thing. 
No thought for God. No thought for how God wants him to live, what God expects of him. This is the person who doesn't recognize any restraints or standards or restrictions from God. Only, the only restrictions he has are his own practical restrictions. This is another reason why we know that John is contrasting a believer and an unbeliever. When believers sin, we do so with the recognition that we are breaking the commandments of God. You know that, beloved. If you're a Christian and you sin, you know you are breaking the commandment of God when you do whatever it happens to be. By contrast, unbelievers often don't even recognize or acknowledge that God has commandments, that God has any standards, that God has any moral laws. As a result, John says here in verse 4, the life that is lived is a life of lawlessness. He doesn't mean lawlessness in the government sense of the term. He's talking about in the moral sense of the term before God. This is to live a life of lawlessness. That is, not recognizing any of God's moral laws. <clears throat> However, let me remind you of what I mentioned earlier. This does not automatically mean that every non-Christian is as vile as he could possibly be, or is as evil as he could possibly be, or as wicked as he could possibly be. It simply means he lives his life by his own standards. He lives his life by what he wants to do. He's the boss. Or so, he, or so he thinks. He doesn't acknowledge God because he is living a life of rebellion, whether that is active rebellion or passive rebellion. Passive rebellion is choosing to ignore or refusing to acknowledge God's commandments, God's standards, God's moral laws. That's lawlessness, says verse 4. Even if the person doesn't choose to live a life of vile wickedness, it is lawless in the sense he will not acknowledge or pay attention to God's moral laws. So John's point is that the person who chooses to live life doing his own thing, whatever his own thing may be, it could be terribly immoral or it may not be terribly immoral, but he just does his own thing instead of God's thing, that person is living a life of sin, whatever it may look like. And that person has not experienced the salvation of God, as John indicates in the next verse. He says in verse 5, And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins. And in Him there is no sin. John reminds us that the ultimate goal of salvation is to make us like the Lord Jesus Himself. The Lord Jesus was sinless, which qualified Him to be our Savior. Since he is sinless and perfectly righteous, the goal of salvation is to make us perfectly righteous. That's why the first phrase of this verse reminds us by saying that he was manifested to take away our sins. Now, how does the Lord do this? If that's why he came, Jesus came to take away our sins, how does he do this? The Lord does this in a three-step process that is described in the words justification, sanctification, and glorification. Let me briefly explain each. Justification takes place the very moment we trust Christ. And that is when all our sins are taken away positionally. We are instantly declared righteous before God. Once the Lord has justified us, he begins the ongoing process that is often called progressive sanctification. 
That is the process of spiritual growth in which he enables us to overcome sin. He enables us to get victory over the sins and habits in our lives. That's sanctification. Then the day will come through death or translation, whichever, when we will be perfected in our righteousness, and that is called glorification. So the full scope of salvation involves these three aspects. Justification, sanctification, and glorification. That's why John says here, and you know that he was manifested to take away our sins. He takes them away positionally in justification. He takes them away practically in sanctification. And he takes them away ultimately in glorification. That's what salvation is all about. Therefore, here's the point in the context. The person who claims to be a child of God, but lives in an unbroken, unaddressed, habitual pattern of sin, is deceiving himself. Jesus came to take away our sins, not to leave us in our sins. So John adds his next statement, verse 6. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. The ESV and the NIV translate this verse with the emphasis on continuous sinning. Both translations use the phrase, keeps on sinning. And the NIV adds an even stronger phrase by saying, continues to sin. That's what John is addressing. The person who abides in Christ does not continue in this unbroken pattern of sin. On the contrary, the person who is abiding in Christ will be very aware of sin in his life. Sin that must be addressed. Sin that must be confessed. Sin that must be conquered. That's what progressive sanctification is all about. The closer we draw to the Lord, the more sensitive we are to sinful thoughts and attitudes and words and actions that we need to overcome. To say it another way, the closer we draw to the light, the more flaws we see. The closer we draw to the light, the more uh, inconsistencies, the more shortcomings we see. And that's why John can say, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. And then John flips the coin over to say it another way. He says, here in this verse, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. If someone claims to be a Christian, let me just put it in, in our own words. If someone claims to be a Christian, but there is no check against habitual sin, then that person is making a false claim. If someone claims to know the Lord, but there's no conviction of sin, there's no deterrent to sin in his life due to the Lord's presence, the person is making a false claim. Let me say it another way. It is impossible to have Christ in your life and to be completely comfortable with unbroken sin patterns. That's an utter impossibility. You cannot have Christ in your life and be completely comfortable with unbroken sin patterns. Sure, it's possible for a true Christian to sin. Sure, it's possible for a Christian to struggle with sin. We all do. That's chapter 1. We need to acknowledge that, admit that. We all do. Here's the difference. 
The difference is that the child of God may struggle with sin, and he doesn't want to give in to sin, but those who don't belong to God don't care that they sin. It's just a part of life that is accepted. That's the contrast John is making. So he says in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. You can see from John's opening statement his concern for his readers because he begins this verse with his familiar address of endearment. He refers to them as little children. John knew how confusing this issue can be. There have always been, and still are to this day, those who claim to be children of God, but their lives show no conviction of sin, no hatred for sin, no desire to be victorious over sin, and no addressing of sin in their lives. John doesn't hesitate to state that such a person does not belong to God. In fact, he prefaces that assertion by saying, let no one deceive you. Beloved, whenever you see that kind of statement in the Bible, it ought to really get your attention. It ought to cause you to stop and really pay attention to what is being said because the authors of Scripture use this kind of statement to warn us about issues that can be confusing or to warn us about issues that people are often deceived about in life. This is one of those issues. This is, do not be deceived. Let no one deceive you. The person who practices righteousness is the person who demonstrates that Christ is in his life, not the person who makes the claim but refuses to deal with sin and lets sin go completely unchecked in his life. Now remember, John is not talking about perfection. He is talking about direction. No Christian is perfect. No Christian is even close to perfect. But the direction of our lives is toward righteousness. Our lives may look like a graph that is continually rising, even though there are dips and slips along the way, maybe even flat lines along the way. John has already stated back in chapter 1, verse 8, that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. As Wearsby put it, we are not sinless, but if we truly belong to Christ, we sin less. That's what John is saying, and he wants to make sure that no one deceives us to believe otherwise. Beloved, this is an especially pertinent passage in our day and age. And I say that because there are people, there are believers who are deceived about this very issue. There are believers who think that someone can say a little prayer and that person is a Christian but have absolutely no change in his or her life, no change as far in relation to sin, no repentance of sin. Some Christians even teach this, teach that this is okay, that this is the norm. And the Holy Spirit through John says, let no one deceive you. John wants to make sure that we get this. So he states it again another way. Verse 8. <clears throat> he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. In the first part of this verse, the ESV and the NASB translations use the word practice 
to make it clear what is being said. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Now this is the same thing John has been saying throughout this passage, but he wants to say it in a variety of different ways to make sure we get the point. The person who goes along in habitual sin and is not convicted of sinful practices in his life demonstrates that he doesn't belong to God. He is still under the influence of the devil. He's still under the sway of the devil. The devil has been in sin since the beginning of his rebellion. He has been waging a war ever since, trying to take as many people as he can with him down his path. That's the devil's plan. But the Lord has a plan. And his plan is not to let the devil do whatever he wants to do unchecked. That's why the second part of this verse says, The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. One of the works of the devil is to get people to rebel against God and engage in sin. That is why he is called the tempter in Matthew 4.3. He is called the tempter again in 1 Thessalonians 3.5. He tempts people to sin. He lures people into sin. So Jesus came to combat this activity of Satan. That is why John can confidently say that the person who shows no conviction of sin, no sensitivity to sin, no victory over sin, proves that he is still in the clutches of the devil. This is strong, strong language from John. But he is simply telling it like it is. It doesn't do any good to sugarcoat this. It doesn't do any good to just sort of, uh, you know, uh, soft pedal this. These are the facts. Verse 9, whoever has been born of God does not sin or practice or continue in sin for his seed remains in him and he cannot practice sin because he has been born of God. Once again, other translations use the word practice or continue in this verse to make it clear what John is saying. The one who has been born of God does not practice sin, does not continue in sin. It is not saying we never sin. The issue being addressed is the pattern, the habit, the practice, the characterization, the direction of our lives. The one who has been born of God does not practice sin or continue in sin. That is not the unbroken pattern of our lives. Then John adds the reason for this change in us. He says here in verse 9, For God's seed remains in him. The natural question that arises is, what is God's seed? Some have suggested that this is a reference to the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's a possibility. Others have suggested that this is a reference to the Word of God that is planted in our hearts. That too is a possibility. Both of those are possibilities, but I believe the best suggestion is that this is a reference to the new nature or the new principle of life that is planted in us when we are born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, that person is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. That verse is saying that we in Christ are new. There's something new about us. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we are born again or born from above. 
The very moment that happens, we become new. We are made new within. Now, this transformation can be described in a number of different ways. You can describe it by saying that we have been given a new heart. And you can find passages in Scripture which use that that picture. Or you can describe this by saying that we have been given a new nature. Or you can describe this by saying we have been given a new principle of life within our souls. All those descriptions are basically saying the same thing. When we are born again, we become new creations in Christ, and this new nature or new principle of life is what propels us or pushes us toward righteousness. It is what keeps us from being comfortable with sin, in addition to the Holy Spirit of God who dwells within. It is what keeps us from just continuing on in the same old life of sin we engaged in prior to becoming a child of God. Again, let me emphasize, even at the risk of being repetitive, let me emphasize, John is not suggesting here that we never sin. He is saying that we have the Word of God in our minds, and the Spirit of God in our hearts, and the life of God in our souls, and that keeps us from going on in the same unbroken pattern of sin that characterized our lives before we were born again. As you can see, John has basically said the same thing over and over and over again in a variety of different ways to make sure we get the point, to make sure we grasp it. There are many differences between the children of God and those who are not the children of God. And one of those differences is the pattern or characterization of our lives. The children of God are characterized by decreasing sin and increasing righteousness, though there are certainly times when we slip and fail and fall. That's the point John is making. So he sums up his instruction with verse 10. He says, In this, the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Except for that last phrase in this verse, This summarizes what John has been saying since verse 4. He adds that final statement about loving other believers because that is going to be his transition into what he wants to say next, as we'll see when we get to the next section of the letter. But prior to that, here in verse 10, he basically summarizes all that he has been saying. The children of God and those who are not children of God are differentiated by the ongoing pattern of their lives. They are differentiated by the characterization of their lives. The person who shows a conviction of sin, the person who shows a commitment to deal with sin and a determination to overcome sin is a person who shows the signs of one who has been born of God. Flip that coin over. The person who shows no conviction of sin The person who still loves sin and is comfortable with sin, not bothered by sin, no no guilty conscience over sin, is a person who shows no signs of being born of God. Or you could say it yet another way. 
The person who loves righteousness and longs for righteousness and pursues righteousness is the person who shows signs of one who has been born of God. On the other hand, the person who spurns righteousness and is not interested in righteousness and doesn't pursue righteousness and doesn't love righteousness is the person who shows no signs of being born of God. That's what the Holy Spirit is saying through John in this passage before us. And it is a very, very important for our message for our day and age. So I ask you this morning, where do you stand in relation to what you have seen in God's Word this morning? Have you been born of God so that there's a change in your heart, a change in your desires, a change in your life? Listen, don't deceive yourself about this issue. Don't let anyone deceive you. This is too important to miss. If you claim to be a Christian, and it's because you think, well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm an American, and if you're an American, you're a Christian. Or, you know, sure, I'm a Christian. I'm not a Muslim, so I'm a Christian. Or I'm not a Buddhist, so I'm a Christian, or whatever. If that's your view, but there's no love of righteousness, no uh, hatred of sin, if there's not a transformation in your life, don't deceive yourself. Or don't let anyone else deceive you. Because this is too important. This has eternal ramification. These are the delineations of what a child of God looks like and what someone who is not a child of God looks like. So look at your heart and really come to grips with whether or not you are genuinely a child of God. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your head, close your eyes so that you're not distracted by any movement around you. This, this text, this passage is so, so very important. There are just far too many people in our society who are deceived about these things or who have been deceived. And so we need to hear what the Holy Spirit clearly says through the pen of the Apostle John. So bring it, don't think about people out there you know or maybe even someone who's sitting around you. Bring it right down to your own life. Look at your own life, look at your own heart and ask yourself the question, honestly, has my life been transformed by Jesus Christ? Has, has he given me a new heart, a heart that loves righteousness and I hate it when I sin, I hate it when I fail, I hate it when I fall because the love of my life is to please Him by living a godly life, a righteous life. Can you honestly say that is what characterizes your life? Can you honestly say that's what characterizes your heart, your passions? If not, if not, you, should, you, you have reason to be concerned. And I would urge you this very moment right there where you are seated to, to do business with God. To open your heart to the Lord by saying, Lord, I, I, I don't think I really belong to you. Or are there questions in my mind? And I want to settle that issue now. I want to surrender my life to you now. I want, I want Jesus, I want you to come into my life, change my heart, make me a new creation. 
Take me. Make me who you want me to be. If there are any questions in your mind, any doubts in your mind, let go of whatever is holding you back. Surrender to Christ today. He will change you. He will give you a new heart, a new disposition, a new direction in life. Father, the the message of this text that we have considered is a strong one, certainly. Very straightforward, cut and dried, black and white, no middle ground. But we need to hear things this way, especially in our day and age where so many things are watered down and in our day and age of political correctness where truth can't be stated in many contexts. We need to hear the truth directly, straightforwardly, especially especially when it has eternal ramifications, which this does. So may your Holy Spirit give us clarity of understanding concerning the things we have considered from your word this morning. And especially we want to pray for anyone who is gathered here who is not one of your children, who has never yielded to Jesus Christ, who's never been made a new creation in Christ, the new heart, a new direction, a new passion. May your Holy Spirit do his work of conviction. And may this be the day that he or she surrenders to the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.